and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 58, an interview with Armin Dodgar, co-founder and CTO of HashiCorp, the company behind the uber-successful open source projects Terraform and Vault. In addition to writing one of the pillars of cloud infrastructure with over 100 million downloads, HashiCorp IPO'd in December of 2021 with over 250 million in trailing 12 months revenue. So without further ado, let's just cut to the interview with Armin and let him tell you about how HashiCorp built this amazing business. Armin, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. HashiCorp has a number of great products, and we could probably fill three 30-minute podcasts just talking about Terraform, Vault, and Console. But at a high level, what's the common theme of business problems that these products solve, and how do they fit together? All of them are kind of motivated ultimately by the same problem, which is, you know, how do we actually build modern applications in a cloud environment? It sounds like a simple statement, but (laughs) once you double-click into that, there's a reason we have so many products. It's really looking at, hey, if we think about what it means to build a modern cloud application, we want it to be you know, automated in the delivery end-to-end. We want to bake in security by default. We're sort of changing our application architectures to be much more sort of microservice or you know, smaller units rather than kind of more monolithic applications. And so once you sort of bring all those requirements and you end up with a whole bunch of challenges around how do I provision that infrastructure? How do I secure it? How do I connect it all together? And you know, how do I deploy and manage the runtime of those applications? So collectively, that ends up being the focus of our broader portfolio. I was reading the S1. There's a great sentence that describes OpenCore, where it says, we sell proprietary commercial software that builds on our open source products with additional enterprise capabilities. What are some of the examples of those enterprise capabilities? Sure. So I'll just pick one product to make it a little bit easier. So if we're talking about our Vault product as an example, you know, the open source version really designed around kind of single data center, you know, single deployment use case. So if we look at the enterprise features, there's a whole class of them just based around things like multi-data center. So if I want to do replication of my data across multiple data centers, if I want to be able to do a horizontal scale out from just one you know, active node to multiple active nodes and do sort of a horizontal scaling, if I want to do a disaster recovery, sort of a replication where I have a different you know, hot cold setup effectively, where I have or hot warm, I should call it, and have a different site that I can flip over for, to, for disaster recovery purposes. So all of those different kind of capabilities for us, we sort of classify as enterprise that you have to you know, have a license to. And so that's why it, uh, we sort of describe that as kind of an open core approach. With open source software, customers get used to deploying it without any license enforcement mechanism. Are you using license enforcement for the enterprise distribution? If you are, how's that going? Yeah, so the enterprise binaries for us do require a license. We've tried to make it super easy so that operationally it's not a big lift as people go from open source to enterprise. So effectively, you swap the open source binary for our enterprise binary it's configured the same, it operates the same. And then alongside the binary, you you know, you basically put the license file there. And, you know, when the enterprise version boots, it auto loads the file in. So it's really meant to be very low lift in terms of doing the, the transition between them. Uh, but we do have a license file and it does enforce, you know, some level of, you know, what's the term of your license? What's the maximum number of entitlements? And that's baked into the license. Is there ever any tension in the product team when you think of a new feature about whether this should be an open source feature or a commercial feature? Occasionally. You know, I think one of the things we did early on 
in HashiCorp's history was to articulate the framework on how do we think about what is open source versus what isn't. And so for us, the delineation has always been, if it's a feature that enables our technical practitioner, meaning you're the end user of Terraform or Vault, and this feature is kind of core to that workflow of you know the problem you're trying to solve with the product, then it really should be open source. The tool shouldn't feel like crippleware in any sense to the end user. So whether you're managing one VM or a million VMs, great, it's not scale limited or you know crippled in any way. Then on the other side, we have a set of you know what we call organizational complexity, where it's really not a feature that an individual user needs. It's an artifact of running it in a larger organization, and that larger organization cares about things like single sign-on, role-based access control, 2FA, audit logs, you know, security and compliance. You know, they're not those are not things any individual user would care about. It's only in the context of an organization that you run into those requirements or those challenges. And so those more cleanly fall into what we would consider enterprise capabilities. So because we have this framework, by and large, most features are pretty clear, right? It kind of falls into one bucket or the other. Every once in a while, uh, you sort of get that tension of a feature where it's not entirely obvious which bucket it should go into, and then it turns into a bit more of a discussion. But for the most part, it's usually clear cut. I was looking at HashiCorp's 10Q, and I noticed that you break out revenues by category, and support was roughly three quarters of the revenue. And I'm wondering if you have customers who are using enterprise features, is there something about the support subscription that is easier to market, or why, why is that? Yeah, this is actually it's a, it's a super common misconception when people look at our our public filing. Um, and this has to do with sort of the vagarities of 606 accounting rules. So certainly I'm not an accountant, but at a, at a high level, effectively, we sell one product. We sell an enterprise subscription to our software that has support included. We do not sell support separately. You can't buy an open source only support license from us. So the disaggregation that you see between a license and support line, whether it's on our 10Q or 10Ks or our S1, is purely a sort of accounting artifact forced by 606 rules, right? We're forced to make some determination on what's considered license and what's considered support. And that assessment's actually done by a third party, by PwC for us. So it's entirely a a, a strange accounting artifact. You actually have to add those two line items together because effectively we only sell one thing, which is an enterprise SKU, and those two line items are combined. You know, in in an infrastructure product, it's very horizontal and has, you know, practically universal appeal. It can be both a blessing and a curse, because when your product appeals to everyone, who do you actually market to or sell it to? So does HashiCorp segment the market? And if you do, does that lead to any schizophrenia for the marketing teams or any of the other teams? This is, I, I think, in some sense, the the best question. And I think if I could go back and <laughs> if I could know what I know now and go back to founding HashiCorp again, um, the most valuable lesson I think I've learned. You know, if I go back to early HashiCorp and you ask me the exact same question, I would have said, no, we sell to everybody. Everybody is our customer. What we learned is that that's a mistake. If you say everyone's your customer, it's kind of the same as saying nobody is your customer, frankly, because the buying motions, what people want, you know, how you'd actually build a go-to-market team are completely different between saying, I care about you know, the global 2000, you know, the world's largest enterprises, and I care about the long tail of SMB, right? They have almost, almost nothing in common, frankly, from a go to market perspective. And so, you know, I think early on, we tried to do both. I think we quickly realized that that doesn't make any sense. 
And so it was really in kind of early 2016 that we made the decision to say, you know what, you know, we're going to focus on enterprise as our initial segment. And so we did split the market and we effectively said, it's the world's global 2000 top biggest organizations. That's who we care about from a commercial perspective, because that's going to then tailor what are the products we're building? What does our pricing and packaging look like? Who are we hiring for our sales and marketing teams? And so that was roughly our focus from call it 2016 until you know, late 2020, early 2021, when then we started actually building a separate commercial focus team to go look at that long tail. And I think what I tell a lot of founders that I advise is, yes, in the fullness of time, you can do both. Yeah, today, HashiCorp does both, but we're also at, you know, over 400 million in revenue. So it's a, it's a different place to be versus when you're at zero, uh, you don't have the people, you don't have the resources to be able to focus on both those segments at the same time, right? And realistically, if you look at even companies like Datadog, you know, at the time of their S1, they were almost entirely focused on the long tail of SMB. They had very little enterprise customers. If you look at the number of customers paying over $100,000, it was, you know, relatively very low. Uh, and it was really only post IPO that they built out a team to go focus on that enterprise global segment. So I think there's an important lesson in there, which is whether it's Datadog who focused on SMB first up till their IPO or HashiCorp where we focused on enterprise up till our IPO. You know, it's, it's very hard as a startup to do both of those at the same time. Even enterprise is a broad market. Like I've, I've noticed a lot of zero trust marketing. Do you break out even the enterprise segment a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, even within enterprise, we think about it across sort of a, to some extent, both a regional split as well as a vertical split split. Right. So by and large, doing our business today is 85% North America. So we have, you know, obviously a small footprint in Europe, small and an even smaller footprint in Asia, but we're very North America heavy. Uh, and then, you know, relatively light footprint, you know, in, in certain verticals, right? We're over, you know, I think certainly the, the verticals that are more called cloud forward is where we focus, right? So in the early days, that was financial services, media, high techs, you know, over time, retail and manufacturing became a part of that. And now I think, you know, you have some of the laggards, right, which is, you know, probably energy, aerospace, defense, uh, public sector to an extent, right? So some of those, are, I think, are, you know, just starting their cloud journey versus, you know, maybe the financial folks who started it back in 2016. A lot of times I ask a question about distribution channels, but HashiCorp has such a dominant position in open source. I almost have to ask it in the opposite way and say, are there any distribution channels other than open source that really are important to you? Probably not, to be honest. Probably not. And I think, you know, the majority of our business, I, I almost wouldn't necessarily, certainly it starts with open source, but I'd say it's our business is by and large a direct business, uh, meaning we don't really go through channel or partner to a large or meaningful extent. And I think that's actually been a shift in buying pattern with cloud. I think a lot of our customers don't want to be kind of intermediated. They prefer to have a direct relationship with their vendor. And I think that's been sort of brought about by cloud to a large extent. So a lot of companies in the open source space struggle to find the right monetization strategy, especially to land and expand. Did you get it right the first time or were there some important pivots along the way? Oh, man, I don't think we got anything right the first time. <laughs> Um, in 2015, 2016 is when we really started to do a soul search for what would the commercial sort of nature of HashiCorp be. And at the time, right, we have to kind of go back. There was really no 
examples of successful open source companies outside of Red Hat, I mean, to a meaningful extent. Everybody else, we were sort of in the same cohort, you know, along with, you know, Mongo and GitLab and Confluent and everybody else. And so we were all kind of figuring it out. You know, our view was that there's only, there was only so many paths. Obviously, one option was support and services model, more like a Red Hat. And I think the challenge there is it's, you know, outside of Red Hat, it was hard to see that scale. And I think Red Hat had the uniqueness of Linux, the, the sheer scale of the operating system market kind of dwarfs everything else. And so it was not clear that you could really make that model work. Then there was obviously open core, you know, and I think there was a question of like, would that alienate the open source community? Is that going to create sort of too much tension with the open source model? So it wasn't obvious if that would work. You could go with a SaaS model. But again, this is 2015. And if you're thinking enterprise is your target customer, they weren't necessarily ready for SaaS. You know, even in 2022, you know, many of our enterprise customers are not ready for our cloud hosted service. So depending on where you are in the stack, your customers had either more or less willingness for a cloud managed service. And I think the fourth option we saw was, you know, some of these exotic licensing models. And again, we felt like, you know, is that high risk of alienating your open source community and, and really do, you know, would most businesses want to entertain something like that? It's kind of an exotic approach. So we kind of looked at those four. And for us and where we were in the kind of space of the market, we said, you know what, open core feels right to us. But we did dabble with these different options, right? We did build a early SaaS. So actually, for people who've been following HashiCorp for a long time, they might remember we had an Atlas product, uh, which was sort of a hosted platform as a service built around our products. We ended up sunsetting that when we decided to focus on enterprise because it was misaligned to our target customer. So we tried a SaaS. We actually sold about, in the early days, we sold support around the open source. So we did some amount of support and services. Um, so we, you know, in some sense, we played with all of the different models, except for the exotic licensing but ultimately decided that open core made made the most sense for us. Sometimes I joke with people that when you open a pizzeria, you know you're going to sell by the slice or by the pie, and you kind of know what price. But for something as new as the cloud, all of our previous assumptions were <laughs> hard to use, like per CPU. Well, you're spooling up instances dynamically. So how, how did you figure out what was the right unit or what was the right um, sort of way to measure usage in your in your open core platform oh man uh <laughs> there's an underlying assumption that we've ever figured it out in there <laughs> um you know i think pricing and packaging is such an interesting thing because it, it, there's always trade-offs with it no matter what metric you pick users will find a way to sort of game it right like there's all it always gamifies in some way or another and so i think it's almost Finding the least bad is how I think about it. They're all they all have weird trade-offs. So I think with each of our products, we've sort of gone through multiple iterations of is it licensed by number of users? Is it licensed by number of applications? Is it licensed by the number of resources under management? Right? Like, you know, CPUs might be a good example. So I think we've is it licensed by the number of you know requests you make, like API requests. So I think we've sort of played with all of these. Ultimately, I think if we pull it back to sort of what are the philosophical goals, I think what we want to achieve is a few things. One is you want a pricing model that scales with the value your customers are getting out of it. Meaning I don't want if my customer 10x is their usage of it, that my licensing stays flat. Otherwise, it's not a fair exchange of value. Two, you want the license estimation to be you know relatively straightforward for your customer. Meaning... When you're going through an enterprise sales cycle, you don't want them to have to guess, hey, how many API requests do you make within a 200 millisecond bucket on you know, this time on Tuesday with your peak traffic? Like That's a very difficult thing for a customer to try and 
estimate in any meaningful way to be able to have a sales conversation. So those kind of pricing metrics tend to be bad because they introduce a lot of friction to the deal versus if you said, hey, how many users do you think you're going to have on this? Or how many applications do you think would be using this? That's a much easier thing for the customer to actually go estimate. So I think once you start to say, okay, we want something that scales roughly, you know, linearly with the customer's value that they're getting out of it. And we want it to be something that is reasonable for them to be able to guesstimate, right, as part of a sales cycle, and that they feel is a fair trade of value. Those end up being kind of the guiding philosophy. And then I think per product, it ends up being a slightly different answer for us, just because we have a broad portfolio. So I was looking at the Terraform GitHub. I read the license. I saw that you actually personally checked in the license in 2014. <laughs> and it's a Mozilla public license 2.0. And it hasn't changed since 2014. So I'm wondering if you could share what are some of the reasons you chose that license and how's it working out? Yeah, it's a great question. And we often get questions about it. So in some sense, our goal was we always wanted something super, super liberal, right? So our initial instinct was actually to use like the MIT or BSD licenses, something that's basically kind of a do whatever you want, no more, no warranties attached. <laughs> and so, you know, back in 2013, 14, we talked to our lawyers and we're like, hey, we want something super open, something that no customer is going to have an issue adopting with because they're going to feel like there's some ickiness to the license. And we feel like BSD and MIT are the way to go. And the advice we got was, those are good licenses. Nobody has an issue with them. But from a legal perspective, they're viewed as a bit ambiguous, meaning they're not super clear on, does this grant access to trademarks? For example, the Terraform name is trademark. Are we granting access to that trademark? Yes or no, right? We have several patents around some of our products. Are we granting access to those patents? Yes or no. And so they felt like MIT and BSD are good, but maybe over vague, where MPL is just as liberal. You can do whatever you want, but it's slightly more explicit that it's not granting you license to trademarks or patents or you know any of these other sort of things. So it's just a slightly more explicit license, but equally liberal. And so we're like, great, that fits our needs, you know, sort of perfectly. I think in retrospect, I think you know the piece that's still unclear about MPL is some of the community contribution. If you're contributing code to it, you know, what are the kind of terms and conditions under which you're doing it? So in the meantime, you know. Several years after 2014, we introduced a contributor license agreement. So anyone who contributes code to any of the HashiCorp projects is required to sign a CLA. And the point of that is just it's just to create that legal construct around, hey, you agree that if you're contributing this code, you're doing it under the MPL license to this project. Uh, because it's not explicit enough, I guess, in the sort of existing MPL and the existing workflow. So I think actually Apache 2, in retrospect, is probably what we would have used. Uh, just because it's slightly more explicit, it has the contributor license agreement as sort of like baked into it. And it's a very, very well understood and well accepted license. So we probably would have done it slightly differently, but MPL has worked out fine for us. You know, you've done your part for open source, right? No one can deny that. And so my, my question is, is what about new products? So now that you're launching new products, is there sort of a discussion about whether or not to make these new products open source? Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously our, our core early products, right, Terraform, Vault, Nomad, Packer, et cetera, et cetera, were all kind of the era was kind of 2013 to 2015, 16 is when we introduced the kind of core portfolio of six products. But I think even if you look at our new products, right, the ones we introduced in 2020, Waypoint and Boundary being kind of the two big new open source projects, they followed in the same footsteps. They're both MPL, they're both open source from day one. 
you know, they're both going to follow an open core sort of trajectory in terms of how we monetize them. And I think for us, we talked about this in the S1, there's sort of this core flywheel of our business, which is really about sort of winning the practitioner heart and minds with open source. And that then is sort of the foundation of how we then build an ecosystem around the tooling, which then is how we go and we sort of win the enterprise customers. So I think that core motion hasn't really changed for us and it really starts in open source. So there hasn't really been a change in our strategy. It's sort of in that sense, it's kind of more of the same, even though our newer products are you know, five, six years after our initial tranche of product. So let's say an entrepreneur walks up to you at a party and he says, I'm working on this piece of software. Should I open source it? What do you say? Oh, that's a good question. I actually think the answer is it depends. And I think what it depends on is where do you sit in the value chain? And what I mean by that is I think infrastructure and developer tooling in particular benefits quite a bit from open source because I think that is an area where people want to be able to customize it. You're selling to a highly technical audience, right? If you think about the people who are the buyers and users of our tools, they're highly technical. They're dev teams themselves. And so you benefit from that effect because they want to be able to customize it, contribute back, et cetera. Now I look at some of these other projects where it's like, you know, we're going to go create a, an alternative to whatever, Facebook or Instagram, and it's going to be open source. Your target user is my mom. Like my mom, you know, is not going to contribute back, <laughs> you know, to that project, right? She might be an end user of it uh, if you're successful, but she's not going to contribute, right? She doesn't know what GitHub is. You know, in that sense, would you benefit at all from it being open source? Maybe to the extent there's a community of people who want to, you know, work on your company for free in their spare time. Sure, but I think in practice, the answer is no, probably no real benefit to that, right? So I think that it, it varies quite a bit on who is your customer, what's the vertical, where do you sit in the value chain? I think the closer you get to developers as your end user and your target audience, then I think the more you benefit from open source. Has HashiCorp ever considered moving to a more democratic governance framework? Right now, it seems like you know most VC-backed software companies that are achieving high growth have very little desire to give up control, any control over the product or the future of the product. But there is something to be said for having a governance process where the ecosystem and the community sort of gets a say. Uh, would that ever be considered? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think we've considered it and certainly I think there's a number of great foundations, right? Whether it's Apache or Linux Foundation or CNCF, right? There's a number of these, uh, you know, larger kind of foundation uh, vehicles that you could join. I think practically speaking, we've never considered it. And I think it comes back to a number of reasons. I think for us, it's always been that we've wanted to kind of have tight control over the destiny of the projects. That's always been super important to us. And so I think we've always, there's always been a reluctance for us to kind of move away, if you will, from the uh, the benevolent dictator for life model that I think has served us relatively well. I saw the Dow of HashiCorp in your S1, and I was wondering if it's the first time the, the word Dow had ever been used in an S1. Can you tell me a little bit, what is the Dow of HashiCorp? <laughs> sure, actually. So we published this document a long, long time ago, I think back in 2013. Uh, when we first started the company. And I think what we wanted to do was make really explicit what were the principles that we think about infrastructure management as. Some of this probably sounds stupid in 2022, but we have to remember the state of DevOps tooling, as we'd call it today, was very different back in 2013. And so for us, it was a bit of a declarative statement of principles where we said, hey, we think 
everything should be driven by infrastructure as code, for example. We think, you know, everything should be designed around the idea of, of sort of microservice architectures, right? At the time, sort of used a bit more technical jargon around communicating sequential processes, but effectively the idea of sort of an agent, a network agent model with, you know, API driven interfaces, you know, and so on and so forth. There's a number of principles that we sort of outline in there where immutability is actually a good example where we talk about kind of immutability. Today, a lot of these things seem almost obvious. You're like, yeah, obviously things like infrastructure as code, obviously immutability. But in 2013, none of those things were obvious, right? Nobody did infrastructure as code, right? Like people point and clicked on the Amazon console. Nobody did immutability. This was the heyday of Chef and Puppet and CF Engine and people ran config management and production. And so I think a lot of the principles at the time were very contrarian, but we wanted to be very upfront on here's our views on how infrastructure should be done well at scale in a disciplined way. And by the way, these are the principles around which we're building our products. And so in some sense, it was meant to be a design ethos for the products themselves. I think people often comment that even though they're you know, very different products in our portfolio, they all have a common look, feel, ethos. And you know that's sort of not accidental. They're all built around the same ethos that we sort of outlined. I'm interested in the ecosystem. I've seen for some open source companies, like take, for example, Automatic, the company behind WordPress, that the ecosystem really can be critical. Can you talk a little bit about how the ecosystems evolve and who are some of the most important ecosystem partners and and what open source companies can do to sort of design ecosystem development into their business model? Sure. Yeah. And so I think actually, for us, ecosystem is super important. I think, uh, you know, going back to that kind of flywheel we talked about in the S1, you know, piece one was when the practitioner, piece two was standardize the ecosystem. And I think every year internally, when we articulate our company goals, those are our three North stars, right? It's when the practitioner standardized the ecosystem, enable the customer. And so all of our goals actually derive from those those kind of three North stars on an annual basis. So it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think it you know, it decomposes into a number of different areas. One is, to your point, from a product architecture perspective, what can we do to encourage it? And I think something we were very deliberate on with our products is this notion of a core plus plugin model. So if I take Terraform, for example, there's the Terraform core, right, which is the main engine that does the graph processing, the workflow, all of that fun, fun stuff. And then we have a very well-defined plugin model with an open source SDK that allows anybody to basically create their own Terraform provider, right? In a few hundred lines of code, you can integrate it with pretty much any any API you can think of. And so that plugin model then enables any one of our community members, any one of our you know technology partners to go create an integration with Terraform. Same sort of a thing with Vault, right? It has a core engine, and then it has this plugin ecosystem that allows you to create a plugin for authentication or a plugin for dynamic secret management or database credential rotation, et cetera. And these are all well-defined plugin interfaces. So that is a product architectural decision where we want to make it simple to create these plugins and kind of keep them a little bit arm's length from the core so that you can come in and write this without knowing how Terraform works. Like you don't have to be an expert in the Terraform code base to go write one of these plugins. Same with Vault. Then on the other side, very early in the company's history, we invested in a technical alliances function. So the goal of that team was to go and do exactly standardize the ecosystem, right? It was tied to that North Star, which is, hey, go talk to these critical technology partners and encourage them and help them and hold their hand on doing those technical integrations with our products and building that ecosystem around us. So that was a very deliberate focus of that team. And we still have a, you know, a large technical alliances team that does that. I think the third part of your question is then who are the, who are the folks that we really think about as influential? 
I mean, it goes without saying the hyperscalers given the space we're in. So we spend a lot of time with, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, you know, Huawei, Tencent, you know, you know, the, the hyperscalers that you would expect. And then beyond that, it's a very large ecosystem of probably, you know, two, 300 technology partners, obviously not all of them equally important, but you know, we want it. If you think about infrastructure as code, great. How do I have tight integration with all of the version control and CI vendors? So well, that's GitHub, GitLab, Circle CI, you know, you know, go on, you know, Atlassian, et cetera, who are the key people in that space. And then for our runtime products, you care about observability. Okay. So who are the people there? New Relic and Datadog and, you know, App Dynamics and, you know, so on and so forth, uh, you know, Splunk, Sumo Logic. So I think in each of those categories, you know, where we know our customers are going to want critical integrations, there's probably the top three to five vendors that, you know, account for the majority of that market. And so you really want to go spend time with all of those vendors to make sure, great, no matter what product of ours you're adopting, the observability integrations are already there. The authentication integrations are already there, right? The version control integrations are already there. And so, you know, you add all those things up and you end up with a lot of partners that you spend time with. We're getting to the end. And so I want to zoom out a little bit. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing open source startups today? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges is the open source landscape has shifted a lot. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we started with HashiCorp, they're, you know, the incumbents, quote unquote, if you will, were all proprietary commercial software vendors. And, you know, I think there's a truism when people talk about startups, like the challenge of a startup is always, as a startup, you need to find distribution faster than the incumbent can copy your innovation, right? And that's always been true. Right, because the incumbent, by definition, is going to have way larger distribution than you will. But you're out innovating them on some dimension. You know, naturally, a startup's going to be more agile. So I think that's always been the race. So I think when I look at early days of HashiCorp, the innovation for us was not just in the product; it was that hey, we can get a massive distribution advantage through open source by going direct to our end users and getting that virality of of sort of you know use. You know, obviously, it, uh, there's always a cat and mouse between startups and and the incumbents. And I think the incumbents, to a large extent, have figured out that that asymmetry exists with open source, right? So whether you're competing with Microsoft or VMware or, you know, whoever it is that in your category is your is your incumbent, they by and large figured out that this asymmetry exists. And I think many of them have worked to neutralize that asymmetry. And whether that's by them embracing open source, in some sense, take a look at the platinum sponsors of the CNCF. Uh, <laughs> you might notice something. None of them are startups. They're all the incumbents of, you know, of sort of the old world because they've all figured out that they're exposed to that sort of asymmetry. And so how do they close some of those gaps? So I do think it, you know, it's changed the game a little bit because I think that challenge is now how do you get that distributional advantage without sort of you know, allowing the incumbents to copy the innovation? So I think that's a real challenge, right? And I do think you know, it requires a different level of creativity. And I think to a large extent, it's about shifting a little bit of some of that to more of these cloud services. So I look at, you know, folks like Databricks and like, what are they doing really well? Yes, it's open source at its heart, but that's really not their distribution channel. Their distribution is actually much more powered through their ease of use of their SaaS and having sort of a freemium product-led growth model on top of the open source. And I think that's very different than the HashiCorp approach, you know, circa 2015. So I do think there's this constant evolution in cat and mouse. And I I do think to a large extent, the incumbents have become aware of that asymmetry. 
So personally, startups are an emotional roller coaster, especially tech startups. Do you have any closing advice for entrepreneurs who are just starting on that journey? Oh yeah, it is a roller coaster is an understatement. Roller coasters tend to only last a few minutes. <laughs> These last a decade plus. <laughs> um, it's a hard question. You know, I think the biggest thing is make sure you're truly passionate about the space because there is going to be so many ups. There's going to be so many downs. There's going to be, you know, it's not going to be an easy, smooth ride. And I think what makes it the going possible is that you have to have a sort of a deep underlying passion for the problem space that you find yourself in. I talked to a lot of founders who, you know, they're in it because they think, hey, you know, this is going to be a good space to make a quick buck in or something like that. And almost inevitably, they get burned when you get to, you know, when the going gets hard, uh, because they don't actually care about the problem. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I think if you aren't truly passionate about it, it's, it can be hard to make it all the way through the marathon, because it, it is a marathon, it is not a sprint. Armin, thank you so much for sharing all of this advice and wisdom. And congratulations on HashiCorp. It's an unbelievable accomplishment. So I can't say congratulations enough. But thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you for the kind words, Mike. And thanks to the HashiCorp team for helping to schedule Armin for this episode. Cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharjee, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zabriski, and Lee Rosevere. We are going to publish two more episodes this year. I won't announce the guests yet, but they're really fantastic. And if you want to say hello, I'll be attending the All Things Open Conference at the very end of October in North Carolina. And I hope to see you there. So until next time, thanks for listening.